Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening of fellowship and study together. We pray especially that we would encounter you, the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ, in the words of Scripture as we read them and pray through them. We pray that we would hear your voice speaking to each one of us, that we would be challenged and convicted by the words of this gospel message, and that we would grow deeper in our conviction that all that you are, all that you have taught us is true, and deeper in our reliance on you and our desire to live out this beautiful Catholic and rich faith that we have. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of us in the ways that we most need it, guide our time together, we lay it at your feet, and we ask any distractions, worries, or anxieties on our hearts or minds, that you would remove those during this time, Lord, so that we can be completely centered and focused on you and your words. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to be attentive. Open our hearts and ears to hear you. And we lay this time and our lives at your feet. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back. We are in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. By the way, if you're wondering why we are in a farm, it is Vacation Bible School week here at St. Timothy. So this is not all for you. Sorry. Um, I was really hoping tonight would be like the passage of the Good Shepherd, and it would like all make sense, but it doesn't. So um, we just have this nice decor for us tonight, if you were wondering. But tonight we will be in Luke 10, 38 to 42. As I said, this is this Sunday's Gospel. And it's just a few verses, so we're going to read through it two, maybe three times, and see how the Lord is speaking. So... This passage happens right after the gospel we just heard yesterday at our last week's Bible study, uh, the passage about the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus was teaching about the greatest commandment. He was questioned by a scholar of the law. He poses this parable of the Good Samaritan, and he continues on his journey, and we pick up right there, right after he gave that teaching uh, last in last week's gospel. So uh, immediately after, this is what the gospel of Luke tells us happens. So in Luke 10, starting verse 38. As they continued their journey, Jesus entered a village where a woman, whose name was Martha, welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary, who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. 
So as we read through this a second time, pretty straightforward passage, you've probably heard it before. Um, try and remove, again, any image that you have of this in your mind from uh, previously to now, hearing it again tonight. Um, but this time I invite you to just listen, see if a particular word or phrase stands out to you for any reason. Something strikes you, sparks a memory, you feel like it resonates with something going on in your life, something you've been praying about. does not have to have anything to do with the passage, but just strikes you for any particular reason. Remember, make note of those things. Ask God, why this? What are you trying to challenge me or compel me to do? What are you trying to say to me? And then also make note of any questions that you have about this passage as they arise. So one more time through Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. As they continued their journey, Jesus entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And as you reflect on this, because it is short, I'm going to read it once more. And so feel free to just continue reflecting. Uh, but if nothing has stood out to you yet, take this last time just to allow that opportunity to happen or continue your reflections if things have already resonated with you. As they continued their journey, Jesus entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat beside the Lord at his feet, listening to him speak. Martha, burdened with much serving, came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. The Lord said to her in reply, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to take a few moments to reflect on the things that stood out to you, the questions that arose as we read through this. And when you feel so inclined, feel free to share with those at your table what stood out to you, why you think it did, what questions you have. And we'll spend about 10 minutes doing that. We'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. If you're doing this on Zoom, share it in the chat. Watching on YouTube later, share it in the comments. But those of you here, have at it. <laughs> All right. I'd love to hear, uh, so bring back to the larger group, what are some of the things that stood out to you and why you think they stood out and any questions that you might have. Jerry. Uh, so what it says, serving. What is she serving? Is she serving God or is she more like a party setting? Yeah. So the question is about serving. What does the word serving mean? Is she serving God? Is she serving the setting? The word there in Greek is diakoinia. That's where we get the word deacon. And the actual word for deacon comes from an actual role, which was like a waiter. So you would call a, a diakonia, that would be a head waiter or a waiter at a, a home, you know, any, anywhere you would go to be served at table. That's what that was. So it was actually physically serving them, exercising that hospitality of the home. That's what she was doing. Yeah. 
Uh, Pam, you had a question. Which Mary? Which Mary is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know if you know this, but there is like a problem in the Gospels. Just too many Marys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have Mary, the mother of God. I mean, you can never have enough too many Marys. I don't want. I don't want that to sound negative. You can never have enough Marys. But um, you have the mother of God, who's named Mary. You have Mary and Martha here from the city of Bethany, who are the sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus raises from the dead. You have um, Mary, the mother of Joseph, who is one of the or mother of James, as sometimes she's also called, one of the witnesses to the resurrection. Mary, the wife of Clopas, who's mentioned as a, com a companion or traveling companion of Jesus, part of the women. You have uh, Salome, who's the mother of James and John, and I'll give you one guess as to what her nickname sometimes is, Mary. Um, and, and then you have Mary Magdalene. All of them are seemingly different Marys. Okay, all of them are different. So we can't conflate like things we know about Mary Magdalene or Mary Mother of God. This is a specific woman named Mary who's always, when she's mentioned, this specific Mary, whenever she's mentioned, to my knowledge, it's always mentioned at least in the same sentence of one of her siblings, if not both of them, Martha and Lazarus. Okay, So in this instance, we, we hear nothing of Lazarus. So I don't know why, you know, why that is. But um, they, they two are always mentioned at least together. So that's who that is. They live in Bethany, which is two miles east of Jerusalem, very close to Jerusalem, often the place Jesus would have stayed whenever he was near or in the city of Jerusalem, especially as it got later in his ministry, it was dangerous for him to stay in the city um, unless he was celebrating the Passover. That had to happen in the city. That was part of the prescription of Jewish law. But if he didn't have to be in the city, he was very likely staying at these people's home. So they were very beloved friends, uh, you know, like kin or family to him. Um, and they may very well could have been related to him. A lot of these people were related or cousins in some some way. Some scholars think um, that up to, I think, half of the apostles could have potentially been distant cousins of Jesus uh, in some capacity. So, um, you know, a lot of different, you know, I don't know how to keep it all straight. You know, which Mary? I guess you just call all the girls Mary and then you're, you're safe, you know. Um, yes? My mom named all of us Mary Joan, Mary Madeline, mm -hmm. Mary Mary Lou, all of us have Mary Mother. Yeah. Yeah. There's a farm to table farm in California uh, called Five Marys. And they're all, all the girls in the family are named Mary. So I think they go by their middle names, obviously. But yeah. Yeah. Yes, Katie. Um, Gonzalo wanted to share that this reminded him of 1 Peter 5 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for us. Mm. He said maybe it's a reminder that we don't have to face our worries on our own. But by seeking Christ first, we may be best equipped to deal with whatever we're facing. Mm. Thank you, Gonzalo, for sharing that. Yeah, that path, that verse there, I think it's like a very relatable Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. You know, like I think a lot of us have heard that or felt that in some moment of prayer, or it's just felt the probably relate to that in some capacity, either now or at some point in our life. Like you were worried and anxious about many things, you know, it's just a very easy place to find ourselves in. So yeah, there's a lot, you'll find it all over scripture. Um, you know, have no anxieties at all uh, is another place um, or the seed that falls on, I think, thorny ground in the parable of the sower that um, can't take root because it's choked by the anxieties of life. You know, all of that is kind of, resonating here relating to this passage so yeah thanks for sharing that Gonzalo. Matt? Just two things I want to say. First one's kind of a funny thing. Like a couple weeks ago I had people over and I always say this with my brother Daniel. It's like, like I'll be Martha you come here. <laughs> I want him to focus 
it's not just like making sure everyone's okay, because I think that's the more important part of like serving. Sure. There's at least like, and like being the host, like if you're not focusing on your guests, then I think you're kind of missing the point of like having people over. Sure. But anyway, um, other than that, like I think this is also one of my favorite um, stories in the Bible, just because it really shows like how God, Jesus, needs to be the center of everything we do. Like we, you know, go to mass. Like the Eucharist is should be the center of everything. And I was telling everyone here, it's like, you could have be serving, you know, the poor all you want, but if you're not, you know, focusing on your relation with Jesus, it's, it's kind of moot. And even with that, like, I've noticed in my life, if I didn't feel like I had the capacity to, like, serve in a specific ministry, like, I just need to, you know, get fed. You hear the thing, like, get fed versus you start feeding others. Mm-hmm. You need to feed yourself first. And, like, I think that's what he's saying. It's like, you want to, you know, love like me, then you need to, you know, love me first. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I really like this story. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. To summarize, if, if you can't hear on the recording or anyone else in the room, I can't summarize all of that. It's very well put. But um, Jesus needs to be the center, and in order to feed others, we need to be fed first. And that it seems as though Jesus is saying, uh, what Matt's sharing, is that Mary has this kind of properly aligned being fed first before feeding others, or being served by God first, experiencing that love first before serving others. Yeah, thank you. Greg? I understand uh, the message of the gospel, but also in reading that, I remember uh, when my kids were young, and we were having a bunch of kids over for a party, for a birthday party, or a Halloween or something, and you get stressed out in a oh, yeah. practical sense. I mean, you want things to go right. Mm-hmm. So here, Martha and Mary, good buddies with Jesus, they're at his house, people are coming over already there, obviously she's going to be stressed out. So yeah. I, mean, I understand what Jesus is saying. It made me think of like the wedding feast of Cana. Mm-hmm. You know, Mary just said, do what he tells you, boom, water into wine, he's done. Yeah. Right? But this is something in a practical sense where things needed to be done. And I think mm-hmm. in some sense that, that message kit kind of gets lost in the translation in a practical sense. Mm. In a spiritual sense, it's fine. But in a practical sense, I mean, uh, it's hard to relate to. Yeah, but I like that you brought up the comparison with the wedding at Canaan, because I hadn't thought about that, but it makes perfect sense. Because what Mary does is she sees the need, just as Martha sees the need here. But instead of getting caught up in it and thinking about what is it that I can do, you know, this could be very much an attachment to like accomplishment, how I am perceived, how I look to others, the hospitality I am exercising. What Mary does instead is she goes right to Jesus. And that's what the Mary, the other Mary in this passage does. She goes right to Jesus. She understands the proper priority. She understands the proper alignment of where we need to be. So it's not the fact that Martha was doing something wrong is that she was doing the right thing in the wrong way. So in essence, for us, a lesson from this is that we need to do the acts of Martha, but we need to do them in the spirit of Mary. That we need to be anchored to Christ first, sitting at his feet first and recognizing that I went to spiritual direction on on Sunday with my spiritual director, and he constantly reminds me of this prayer, and I've shared it here before, that um, sometimes we just need to come to the Lord and and, and, and say, I can't, 
but you can, and you promised. And that's the difference between having a humble heart, a detached heart, and what Martha's doing here. What Martha is saying is, she can. She can do it. And then it feels like, oh, I can't do it. So Jesus, you need to fix this. It's the opposite of kind of that proper, humble posture with the Lord. You know, and how many times have we gotten caught up in that? Like feeling like, you know, our worth is attached to what we accomplish. Our worth is attached to the, the good that we can do. The checklist, you know, as long as I'm going to mass, doing acts of mercy, you know, things like that, then I'll be okay, right? It's like, well, no, like it needs to be first anchored in proper relationship with the Lord, proper reliance on God as his children. I've been thinking about this phrase um, a lot this week. I didn't hear it anywhere. It just kind of came to me. Um, it's possible to have a full life and not have a full life. It's possible to have a full life but not have a full life. Meaning your life can be full of many things, full of the anxieties of serving and all the things that we do to save face, all the things that we do to achieve this or achieve that or appear how we want to appear to other people, look very impressive and professional and whatever it may be. And we can do all of that and be completely empty. We can have a full life on paper and be completely empty. But a full life in the fullest sense of that word, a spiritually full life, that's what Mary has found in this passage. And so that's why Jesus, he doesn't say, Mary has chosen the right thing and you've chosen the wrong thing. He says, Mary has chosen the better part. Not that what you're doing is bad or wrong, but when you put it in its, its improper place in terms of priorities, if you misalign it and you put that level of accomplishment appearances, whatever it might be, on your throne of what will make you happy, what will bring you that kind of sense of fulfillment that you are looking for, then things fall into misalignment. Things become disintegrated. But when we have a properly integrated heart, Jesus is always first. He's always at the center. That's why I love this verse here that says, there is need of only one thing. You guys probably heard this phrase before. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, I think Rick Warren uh, uh, at Saddleback, I think it's attributed to him, but it, he may have sold from someone else because that's what we all do. We just steal things from each other. But the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's really the center of just what it means to live a gospel-driven life. You know, The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's not about what we do. What we do is important, but it needs to follow this. And it recognized this comes after last week's gospel. Last week's gospel started with what is the greatest of the laws? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then, who is my neighbor? Then what do I do? And you have the passage of the Good Samaritan. And then Luke very artistically crafts back in a reminder. He sandwiches the Good Samaritan with a reminder. Yes, you have to do the good things, but first, sit at the feet of Jesus. That is where it all starts. That's where it all ends. That's where it all flows from. That's what it all points toward. And if we are not sitting at the feet of Jesus, then we might be doing good things out in the world, but we've missed the entire point of the gospel, the entire point of why we are meant to come to Jesus, why he is our savior, and how we are allowing him to save us. So it poses certain questions, like, is it possible for a quote-unquote good person to go to hell? Well, if that person openly rejects God, even though they might do a laundry list of what looks like good things in their life, if they tell God, I don't want to be with you in life, well, he's going to respect that decision in death. Like, there's a proper order to what we need to do first and what everything in the Christian life needs to be flowing from. Relationship with Jesus, surrender to him, recognizing he's our savior, we cannot save ourselves. And I guarantee you, the recipe 
for anxiety and worry, as it says here about Martha, is trying to be your own savior, trying to do it all yourself. And I'm speaking from loads of experience, trying to do that all the time. I can fix this. If I just have a plan, if I'm just disciplined enough, if I just get this on my to-do list, if I just execute X, you know, whatever it is, if I just have a plan. And every time I do that, I'm edging God out. I'm telling him, hey, I've got this. I don't need you to save me. Instead, I need to say that prayer. I can't, but you can, and you promised. I hope that answers your kind of question or comment about the practicality of this, that it's not necessarily about one is good and one is bad. But when we're in those moments of like practically doing the things of life and we get welled up, we have to ask ourselves, like, is this about me? Like, is this something that I'm attached to? And how can I invite God into this situation? I was telling my wife yesterday, um, I was trying to print something out in my office before I, I had to be a spiritual direction. And I was going to run late and this thing was not printing. It was not connecting to my printer. And when technology fails, I always just like, I'm like, all right. And I say out loud, in the name of Jesus, I just ask that you print. And immediately it started printing. And immediately in my head, I was like, God, I did not ask you for enough. Like, I don't like, really, like if, and I just felt God kind of like laughing. Like, I could hear him in my soul, like, laughing. I'm like, you have no idea. Like, he was like, you have no idea what I can do in your life if you just ask. But I, instead, try and be the Martha of my own life so often that I rob myself of these merry experiences. And maybe maybe you can relate to that, too. So, yeah. Thank you. It makes me think of how often we try to change our circumstance rather than kind of change ourselves. Yeah, you know, so it's interesting with the with the gospels. Always, there's always this con- contrasting of somebody who's living in the world and somebody who's living in the spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just another example of you know Jesus pointing it out. Hey, like this is the one thing. It's, I like the way of like prioritizing. You yeah, know, and it makes me think of also how it's not about the actions you perform, but the state that you're in when you perform the actions, or rather, even if you are in action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what what are you focusing on? What are you putting your mind toward? What are you putting your soul to? What are you putting everything towards? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, Father Mike Schmitz, he's, he's pointed out in a couple of his homilies that about a hundred years ago, the word priorities did not exist because only one thing can be prior. You can only have a priority. Only one thing can come prior to everything else. And yet, as we got busier, we just started adding priorities. So that we could appear like, what's the, you know, the common badge of honor when someone asks you, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. You know, it's possible to have a full life without having a full life. You know, and are we too busy for God? I may have mentioned this in the, in the recording for last week or sometime recently, but I, I heard uh, somewhere else that the basic quality of a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who is willing to rearrange their, their schedule to get closer to Jesus. Someone who's willing to rearrange their calendar, their life, their schedule, whatever, to get closer to Jesus. This is basically that. Making the time. And yet, so many people, including all of us included probably at times, can get uh, worked up in the rat race of the world. Achieving the things that we think will make us happy. More zeros on your paycheck, more followers on social media, more friends, more social engagements, you know, whatever it is. And you see people who have all of that and more, and they're miserable. You know, you look at lottery winners, 
and what over, I think 90% of them spend it all in the first five years, blow it all and end up just as broke as they were before. Often, you know, this kind of curse associated with it that just all these people come looking for money and they blow it on these things or it just becomes this huge burden. You know, those things, when we finally get them, don't make us happy. It's that, as Nick was saying, the battle between the world and the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. What are we living for? What is our priority? Where are we looking for our satisfaction and our fulfillment? That's really what this is pointing to. Yeah. I'll just say to the fact that people say there are different forms of prayer. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Mary is put to Jesus, that's her form of prayer. Mm-hmm. But Martha, her serving was her form of prayer for Jesus. I would argue it wasn't a form of prayer. That's why he critiques it. It was a form of self-aggrandizement. That's why she says, um, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself? It's not an act of servitude, like really like prayerful servitude. And I'm not trying to be overly critical of Martha, but I'm showing like what the difference here. Because again, Jesus doesn't say what you're doing is bad. He's saying what Mary has done is better. And so it's again, doing the works of Martha, but in the spirit of Mary recognizing, yes, that if we anchor them in Jesus, this flows from Jesus, this gets me closer to Jesus, this is about my relationship with Jesus, and if it is a doing kind of mechanism through which we experience him, then yes, it is a form of prayer. But when it is about us, and we get to this place where we would be so bold to tell Jesus, tell her to help me, tell her to come do this. Lord, do it my way. I know you created the universe, supernovas, galaxies, platypuses, the color purple, but I think I've got this figured out. I think I have a better way of arranging the situation. So could you conform your will to mine? I mean, the utter pride at times that we can have as humans. And that was the first sin of Adam and Eve, right? We think we know better. That was the temptation of the serpent. Did he really say? Did he really say that you would die? And for us to believe, yeah, maybe, maybe he's wrong. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I think, maybe I know better than this guy, guy. You know? No, we don't. Right? So when we have it properly ordered and we recognize everything I do is a prayer for the Lord. If that's the motivation, absolutely yes, it can be a prayer. So it's not about not doing things and make like we have to all be on our knees in contemplative prayer in the chapel first before we go help the poor. No. If helping the poor is an act of prayer and service to Jesus, and it's not about, oh, I'm getting my brownie points for heaven and look how holy I am. But if it's really anchored to that devotion to the Lord, sitting at his feet, recognizing him in the faces of the poor, as so many saints have told us, that's where we see Jesus very palpably and real. Then, yes, we, we have the same. That would be doing the works of Martha in the spirit of Mary. What would you Matt, oh, yeah, continue. Oh, if you could rephrase Martha's statement to Jesus, how would you say that to bring it into the spirit of the gospel? So where she say, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me by myself to do the serving? Tell her to help me. You know, honestly, I think if she was doing the works of, of Martha in the spirit of Mary, she probably wouldn't have said a thing. Same thing. Yeah. She would have either recognized this will get done later and she would have joined Mary. Or she would have, you know, it's not like there's like soundproof rooms, you know, like she could probably hear just fine. You know, she was just getting, you know, you know when you're stewing and you can only hear your inner monologue, like, just like, I just, I just can't wait to, 
I just can't wait to tell. I'm having a mental conversation with my wife simultaneously. I just can tell, you know, like, or I just can't wait to tell Mary or Jesus this. Like, I just, you're rehearsing that conversation in your head. You can't hear anything else, right? That's probably what was happening to Martha. Because in reality, like, these houses were one room with, like, half walls. Like, she could hear. She could be just, you know, uh, mentally at the feet of Jesus while she was doing these acts of service and have that kind of humility of heart to be like, this is my role. This is what I'm desiring to do. So I honestly, my response would be to rephrase it in a way that was more in the heart of Mary. She wouldn't have said a thing. She would have dropped it and joined her, or she would have kept doing what she was doing, quieted her inner mind, surrendered it, recognized what was more important, and listened. Yeah? Was this before or after the raising of Lazarus? So that we don't know, because this is in Luke, and the raising of Lazarus only happens in John. Because this is this is the first time Martha's kind of like got on Jesus because with Lazarus' head he would have been here. Yes. So she has no reputation yeah. about. Yeah. But I believe Mary also says that to him. They both, I believe, say that to him in John. Uh, John eleven is where the raising of Lazarus is. Um, so yeah, we don't necessarily know. However, in the sequence of events that happens in the Gospel of John, um, that instance of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And then right after that is when um, Mary anoints his feet with very, like, um, expensive oil. Um, that's the last thing to happen before he enters Jerusalem in his final week of life, where in Luke, several other things happen. We have, like, eight more chapters until he enters Jerusalem. So I would imagine this happened first if they were on separate occasions, um, which they very likely were. But we don't know because they don't appear in the same gospel, so it's hard sometimes to line up. But based on the sequence of events, this happens very early in Luke, and that happened very late in John, in terms of his three years of ministry culminating before that last week of his life. Okay. I was just going to mention, just based off what Greg was saying, um, I was at a retreat probably two months ago, and he talked about just relationships in general. <laughs> and it's funny because he said a lot of people that are very spiritual They'll try to pray for everything, but they don't take any action. So it's like, mm. let's say they're having issues with their wife. Like they'll pray. It's like, I hope, you know, my, my relationship with my wife gets better. And they just hope that something happens. Yeah. It's like, there's a call to action. And I think, like, prayers, like the daily exam, are really cool because it kind of has you reflect on your actions like, throughout the day. And that kind of brings God into, like, your decision making. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. Like, how you know there's different forms of prayer, but it's like when you're centering, you know, God in your decision making, really, you know, outwardly pray to others based on like your reflection of what you did previously. Yeah, yeah. So either of these kind of postures, devoid of the other, is incomplete. So in, in one sense, prayer without action is incomplete, but action without prayer is also incomplete. They need to be aligned but they also need to be properly ordered that we can do like i said do all of these action things but if prayer is the last thing in our calendar or it doesn't happen at all then very likely we're going to end up in the scenario where we're welling up in pride and looking at all the good things that i'm doing and maybe we're just adding it to a resume or doing it for service hours or doing it so we you know can save face or whatever it might be um, but if all we're doing is being caught up in prayer and we don't commit any of that to action you know, um, that, that's devoid of any real authentic love of the Lord either because we're doing a disservice to what he's asking of us. So even like monks and, you know, cloistered sisters 
You know, they spend so much of their time in prayer, but so much of that is ordered toward doing the inner work of becoming more conformed to being saints. You know, they're putting it into action, even if it's just in the closed walls of their small little cell and in the closed, you know, uh, places of their own soul. Uh, but they're still, you know, acting on it. So you're absolutely right. We can't just, you know, just pray and say, God, will you handle all of this stuff and just sit back and do nothing? Like we're meant to be co-creators, co-creators with God. This actually relates to something. This is the second reading for the Sunday in Colossians chapter one. And there's a phrase in this that comes up that this is one of the hardest passages, I think, for priests to preach about. Um, because it says this in Colossians 1.24. Paul is saying this to the church in Colossae. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And that is a hard thing to preach about because you would think, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Absolutely nothing, right? What he did for us on the cross was complete in and of itself. He died for our sins. He took them on. And yet Paul is saying something is lacking. And the answer to this, the key to this, is that the thing that is lacking in the suffering of Christ is our participation in it. When we can offer up our sufferings to God as Jesus offered up his sufferings to us, the love, the grace that flows from that co-creation, that co-offering, is more abundant. Even though we cannot change and make more abundant what Jesus did, when we participate in it, then we are making up for what is lacking. What's lacking is our effort, our participation. And so that can relate very well to this passage, that these things need to be properly ordered. But if we just sit back and do nothing, all we do is pray. You know, Mary was not sitting at the feet of Jesus just because he was a good storyteller. Like it was, that was the posture of a disciple. It even says in the footnote, if you have the New American Bible, it is remarkable for first century Palestinian Judaism that a woman would assume the posture of a disciple at the master's feet. Remarkable. A disciple is an apprentice, someone who is studying to become like the master, to go and do what he did to become like him in every sense of the word. That was what all the disciples were trying to do. And so it wasn't just empty hearing, you know. So all of these things need to have proper have their proper position. And so when you hear that second reading, and when you hear the first reading about the, uh, the hospitality extended by Abraham and Sarah to the three strangers who come, and they extend hospitality, and out of that hospitality becomes this abundance of them being announced that in their old age and in their sterility, they're going to have a child that blessing of a child being born in very unusual circumstances, kind of pointing to how the blessing of obedience, the blessing of being rightly ordered is a foreshadowing of Mary's heart being rightly ordered to God and how her yes brought forth the baby in a very unusual circumstance as well that changed everything. And the way that we offer up our sufferings in what is lacking in the suffering of Christ, our participation that you're in the second reading, all of this kind of, these readings may seem a little bit disconnected, but they're so perfectly coalescing around this idea. That we need to be at the feet of Jesus, but recognize that compels us to be his co-creator. To go and bring his mission to the people that we serve, the people that we're in the lives of, and our families, our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, whoever it may be. So there always needs to be a balance there. You cannot have one without the other, but the doing cannot supersede the being. We are first disciples. We are first 
children of God at his feet. That needs to come first, always. Yeah? I don't know if you have like, the original page um, or what happened. Maybe <laughs> someone knows the language. I feel like there's something missing in translation on the last part. Okay. Um, the words that are used for thing, part, portion, are those same words? Like, you worry about many things, many parts, Mary chose the better parts of a thing. Yeah, so when it says Mary chose the better part, it actually says Mary chose the good portion. Um, but things is the word things. Yeah, many things. Um, yeah, I don't know what that particular root word is. It's pola in Greek, P-O-L-L-A. Um, but yeah, many things, many, you know. Is, is the word used for thing the same as what is used for the good thing that she Mary chose? No, no, that's a good portion. Uh, Agathen Merida. Is uh, what it is so portion like choosing the good portion would be like if you were um, to me in a Jewish context that reminds me of a sacrifice. You know, you offer the good portion, the best portion, like the fatty portions to the Lord on the altar. So it's as if she's choosing the thing that is producing that kind of sweet smelling oblation and offering to God in that very sacrificial language of the Torah in the Old Testament. Um, so that good portion, that just that phrase reminds me of that. I don't know if it's a direct correlation, but it's different. It's very different than the phrase many things about the things she's anxious about. Yeah. But it is a good kind of comparison that if you're anxious about many things, those are very earthly, like, you know, not very specific things. But good portion, that has to do with something very sacrificial and offering to God. It also shows the disparity between what Martha's, Martha's worried and concerned about, very kind of fickle earthly things, and what Mary's concerned about, very, you know, sacrificially and spiritually oriented things. So it could very well be present there in the language disparity too. Yeah. Great question. What's interesting here, too, in the original language is the meaning of uh, these two women's names. Um, so Martha, the meaning of her name is uh, lady or mistress. Um, but in the original Aramaic, her, her name kind of comes from a word mare, which means lord. Uh, and so it's a derivation of the word lord. So it's almost as if they're trying to paint here that she, there's very particular things about names in Jewish culture. Like your name is your essence. It's very formative, uh, formative about your identity. And sometimes that comes out in the story. And so in essence, she's trying to take the place of Lord. She's mentioned as the Lord of the house. In fact, when it says uh, Jesus entered a village where a woman, the actual phrase in Greek is a certain woman, which is the same phrase that's used in the Good Samaritan, a certain man fell victim to robbers. So there's this comparison between a certain man and a certain woman. And how these things are kind of, like these things are right next to each other, okay? So, um, and the interesting thing about Miriam, uh, it comes from uh, Mary. The name Mary comes from the word Miriam, like Moses' sister. Um, and that can translate to two different things. It can mean either bitter or rebellious. And if you have read the, the uh, book of Ruth, um, uh, someone changes their name to Mara, which means bitter because of the things that they've experienced, uh, because of all the loss that happens at the beginning of that book. Um, that's where that word comes from. But it can also be translated to beloved. So it's interesting there that both those translations make sense. She's rebelling from the normal convention of the female role in the household, taking on the male role of a disciple at the feet of Jesus, which is unheard of. Jesus' ministry to women, unheard of, completely countercultural. No one else did that. Like, radical. And yet, she is taking the position of beloved. 
you know, showing us almost in a sense like this disciple who Jesus loved, that is who, you know, like we put ourselves in that position when we read that gospel. So there's something there, even to the meaning of their names. Um, it's really fascinating. If ever you're reading a story about the Bible, look up the etymology of the names in the story, and it just adds a whole nother layer. It just kind of tells you about what it is behind, you know, the, the nature of these people that's trying to communicate to you what's really happening. Like in that scene uh, that you were here in the first reading, Abraham and I, uh, Abram and Sarah, Sarai is her first name, which means, uh, Sarai and Sarah both mean princess, just in different languages. Um, but Abram means father of many, and he was uh, sterile. So imagine how, like, how bullied he probably was for that name, like how much people made fun of, oh, father of many, where are your kids at, right? And then Jesus, uh, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a great many. Like he doubles down. Like on all this probably like pain he's been through. And so these three men come in the, uh, in the first reading that you hear on Sunday, pronouncing to him, because of his generosity and his hospitality, that's rightly ordered, that he is going to have a son. And I believe it's Sarah who overhears and she laughs. And they say, it's, it's not clear in the English, but they say, because you have laughed, you will bear a son. And the name, the word for laughter in Hebrew, is Isaac, where we get the word Isaac, the name Isaac, which would be the name of their son. So whenever you're reading these stories, look up the, the meaning of those names. It just gives you a whole other layer of, uh, of the richness that's there. Other uh, questions, comments about this passage? Cool, I get some time to see what else there's here. Um, so, the interesting thing here in verse 38, we don't know if the disciples and the apostles are with Jesus. It says, when they continued their, when they continued their journey, he entered a village where a woman whose name was Martha welcomed him. Okay? Um, this also is a very kind of broken social norm here, that you would normally not have a female listed as the head of the house, especially learning later that they have a brother named Lazarus. This was very unusual. But it, it is echoed in the kind of unusual way in which women ran the early house churches in Acts of the Apostles. Um, you know, you have certain women who are mentioned, like Priscilla uh, and people like that in the, in the New Testament. Um, how Paul praises the faith of uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother. You know, he cites the matriarchs in his family. So this is very countercultural, unusual stuff that's happening. And so anytime you hear... Because this, this comes up all the time, you know, these things about Catholicism or Christianity in general being these very patriarchal organizations that are here to oppress women. Um, I think it's just a radical misunderstanding of the priesthood. And, and there are definitely times in history where that was a reality. But when you look at the gospel roots of it, what Jesus did in his ministry to women, and there's a whole section on, um, on, on Jesus's, uh, the group of women that followed Jesus in Luke chapter 8, paid all of his bills, you know, followed him, you know, were disciples of his. All of the first witnesses in every gospel account to the resurrection were all women. That was radically countercultural for that time. At this time, you needed an escort to even talk to or approach a woman if you were a man. You needed another male escort there in order to protect the dignity of the woman. Kind of remember that two-witness rule to prove that nothing kind of uh, lascivious or lewd was going on. And so think just about the scandal of the story of the woman at the well. You know, Jesus sends everyone away. And he encounters this woman at the well, who's then, it's being made clear, is a woman who's very um, known for adultery. Like how scandalous that was. And yet, he goes out of his way to welcome her, to break that social convention. 
Okay, so Jesus is not like this person who's just conforming to the norms of the time. You know, um, when we think about the priesthood and why the church has a male priesthood, it's not because it was something that was just part of the convention of the time. But Jesus was being very intentional, and he's very intentional in the ministry he did with women. It's very intentional why the church is considered her or she, and this bride to bridegroom in Jesus Christ relationship. So all of that is very, I think, at play here in some sense. Um, so a village where a certain woman in the original Greek, whose name was Martha, welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who sat beside the Lord at his feet. That is a posture of a disciple, of a student listening to him speak. Mary burdened with much serving. Again, that word there for serving, diakonion, where we get the word deacon. That doesn't mean that she is functioning as a deacon. That happens later in Acts chapter 6 or 7, um, where the actual office of di the diaconate is established. But they take that same root word to show what the ministry of a deacon should be like. It should be one of hospitality, one of serving in the name of Jesus, those who've been neglected. Uh, in fact, it's because those, uh, in chapter 6, verse uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, it says, at that time, as the number of disciples continued to grow, the Hellenists, which were a um, Greek-speaking group of Jews, they complained against the Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking group of Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the twelve called together the community of disciples and said, it is not right for us to neglect the word of God to serve at table, diakonis. So the way in which we're supposed to provide for others. So recognize in that story, when the whole office of the diaconate was started, it was because there was a doing that was happening that was not, it was like the works of Martha not happening in the spirit of Mary. They didn't understand like why they were supposed to provide for one another because Jesus provides for all. They were still becoming culturally divided and only providing for their little people. And so the office of the diaconate is established so that all the poor, the widows, all of the people who are struggling or suffering in some way would be provided for. So not a relation in terms of any kind of office here for Martha, but the same word there is used. Um, Lord, do you not care? Have you ever had a prayer like that? God, don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you care about what's going on, like in the world? You know, don't you care about all the people that are going hungry? You know, I say this all the time. You know, uh, people ask that of Mother Teresa. You know, why do, don't you think God should do something? You know, why do you don't you think God cares? Why do you think so many people are are allowed to suffer? Why do you think He's letting so many people suffer and go hungry? And she just said, He's not. We are. We're letting them. It's as simple as that. You know, there's so many, I, I know a few people actually who they are, um, they're adamant and, and so angry about the fact that like there are billionaires and that they have all this money and they're hoarding it and they're, they're taking it away from the things that will provide for the poor. And if they just like gave their money and were more generous, it would fix everything. And whether that's true or not, that was never the early church's mentality. The early church's mentality was that every person looked at themselves and said, what can I do with what I have? What can I do with what I have because of what Jesus has done for me and what I hope that he will do for others? And when we can provide for their physical needs, they can then be comfortable enough to start thinking about their spiritual needs, and then we can minister to them. That was the whole, it was rightly ordered toward the Lord in all that they did. But we've all had those moments, I'm sure. Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? And so I would encourage you, whenever you have that kind of mentality, you know, to go to the Lord like, don't you care? Aren't you going to do something? Maybe just hear that kind of gentle nudge of God back to you saying, do you? Do you care? Are you going to do something? Because you're there. I already came and went and did what I was supposed to do. Now it's you. 
You're carrying on that mission. And yes, he will do it in and through you. He will give you the grace and the gifts that you need to do everything that you've been called to accomplish as part of his plan, as part of building his kingdom. He's already done that. He's already at work in doing that. But we need to be participating in it. Going back to that second reading again. That my sister has left me by myself to do the serving. Tell her to help me. Jesus, do you have any idea what you're doing? And I think we, we pray like this all the time. You know, I, I, I'm critical of this. And it's, it's good to be persistent in prayer. But are we persistent in prayer? Do we say the same things in prayer every time we pray because we think God is some like bumbling idiot in heaven who's like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot to get to that yesterday. Thank you for reminding me, telling me over and over and over again. No, like the second we utter a prayer, second we utter a prayer, God's ear is here in front of us. The only obstacle to that is our own sin. If we've made some kind of vow, we have some kind of attachment to evil or sin that's separating us from God, that's preventing him from being in a closer relationship with us, he will honor and respect that. He will not come closer than we've allowed him. If we've put up barriers, if we've put up walls, even if we've made vows, even if it was like 15 years ago and you said, I will never allow God to get close to me. And if you've never gone through an actual process of healing or prayer to break that vow, God is still respecting that vow. He honors your free will that much. If you've made that kind of oath or vow to yourself or out loud. So those are the things that can prevent. But most of the time, God hears it immediately. He knows it immediately. He's already working on it. And it's that mentality. Do I trust God enough to just say, like, all right, God, you've got this? Or am I trying to think, okay, if I just keep reminding him, if I keep saying it over and over again, if I get wrapped up in the doing and the things that I'm very anxious and worried about, then I can slip accidentally into Martha mode, and I can forget that Mary mode is all about having that trust and posture of, of humility toward God and knowing that he is taking care of this. So that's why he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. There's need of only one thing. The main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. Mary has chosen the better part, but a good portion, and it will not be taken from her. This also shows us that God prioritizes different things than we do. God prioritizes different things than we do. There's a story in uh, Luke chapter 7 before this uh, about the widow of Nain. You may remember this story. Uh, this widow's son dies. And when a widow is widowed, like that's her main source of income. Like that's a destitute place to be. And then her son died. She has no one to provide for her. So she's utterly destitute. She's completely in despair, not only losing everyone around her, but now being basically cursed to, a, you know, a, a soon after this death for herself because no one can provide for her unless she begs or does some other thing that is probably not appropriate to make money. And Jesus comes and he says, do not weep. You would think like the number one thing that we're all kind of concerned about at a funeral is grieving, right? We prioritize different things than Jesus does. Just do not weep. And then he raises the guy from the dead. Because God prioritizes different things than we do. He knows what he's doing. And so if we have things in a proper order, if we rightly order our, our relationship with him, that that is first. Trust in him is first. Not this immediate need to kind of come in and try and fix. And we all struggle this, but especially with, this is a very general stereotype, but men in particular, we are the problem solver, doer type of people. This is why the women in our life constantly complain that we're constantly trying to fix things and give them advice when all they want us to do is listen, right? But we all kind of struggle with this to some degree. Don't look at me on that page. Um, so <laughs> I know I do it. We all do it. But, you know, that's something to be aware of in how that plays in our spiritual life. 
Do we try and just immediately, like, okay, what can I do about this? Or do we fall on our knees in prayer and ask God, Lord, what are you already doing in this? Do we go to God and say, do you not even care that this is happening? Or do we say, God, what are you doing in this for me? How are you calling me to be aware of how I need to care about different things? How are you calling me to be aware of how I might need to be more reliant on you? Or how I might be attached to things that I shouldn't be attached to? Do we seek all of these moments that happen in life, these sufferings or difficulties, as obstacles or as opportunities? All of that, beautiful messages, things to reflect upon for our own spiritual life, how we are prioritizing the right things and potentially the wrong things as we hear this reading and the other readings proclaimed this Sunday. So I encourage you to think about this. Think about the ways in which you tend to be Martha, the ways in which you tend to be Mary, the ways you'd like to be maybe a little bit more like Mary, and then when that is properly ordered, what you can then do, the works of Martha and the spirit of Mary, to properly align those and live a more integrated life. Because if we don't, things will disintegrate and fall apart. And we will be anxious and worried about many things over and over and over and over again. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, thank you for this word. And all the words of knowledge and wisdom that you were able to share with us through our sharing with one another tonight. We just thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit moving and working in our midst, convicting us and challenging us, and especially compelling us to know your deep love for us and how much you desire for us to simply be with you. And out of that being, out of that relationship, comes a properly ordered life where we know what we are to do. We pray, Lord, that we would have this spirit, that we would have the spirit of the martyrs who were so detached even from life that they would joke at the moment of their death because they knew what was the most important thing, you. And so help us to surrender the things that give us anxiety and worry and help us to know what are the things that we can partner with you, that we can co-create with you in our own life to create a more integrated life, one that is always at your feet and not as concerned about saving face or doing things for our own accomplishment, but being fed so that we can go do the work of mission so that more people will come to the table and know you. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this time. Bless us each in the ways we most need it until we gather again. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great to see you.